You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. In a book uh, by Thomas Merton called The Seven Story Mountain, he recounts the experience he had with a Hindu man who lived a monastic life. And this Hindu man discussed the various effects that Christian missionaries had had in parts of South Asia and how they had pretty much had little to no impact on this region of the world. And Merton was reflecting on the conversation. He made this conclusion in this book. The Hindus are not looking for us to send them men and women who will build schools and hospitals, although those are good and useful in and of themselves, and perhaps even very badly needed in South Asia. But these Hindus want to know one question. Do we have any saints to send them? They want to know, do we have any saints to send them? They didn't want people who would do more for them. They didn't need people who could even enhance their quality of life. They wanted people who modeled an altogether different way of being in the world. They were not looking for strong workers. They were looking for holy people. Do we have any saints to send them? Rich Felitas is a pastor in New York, and he describes the tension between monastery and mission. And in following Jesus, one of the great dangers is that our doing precedes our being. We are not called to hole up in our cathedrals, but neither are we called to sprint with constant works in the world. Instead, we are called to hold the tension between monastery and mission, between a life rooted in God that can offer something beautiful to our city. I didn't have anyone read our teaching text this morning because it's merely one verse. It is 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. And I looked up various translations, so I'm going to read a few of these. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And this is from the Christian Standard Bible. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. This from the King James Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. This is the Living Bible Translation. May the Lord bring you into an ever deeper understanding of the love of God and of the patience that comes from Christ. And then this is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. May the Master take you by the hand and lead you along the path of God's love and Christ's endurance. Is this not the summation of our discipleship to Jesus? Paul is praying for the church at Thessalonica that the gospel would go forth, that they could be delivered from wickedness and evil, and that God would change their belief in his love to their experience of his love. And that God would transform the idea of perseverance and endurance into the reality of love. 
This is Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica, and this is my prayer for us. When I think about our city, when I think about this neighborhood, when I think about our world even, I think, what does our city need more of in 2022? What does our city need more of in 2022? I can tell you what they probably don't need. I don't think they need nominal Christians who feel enough guilt to pressure people into following Jesus, but not enough conviction to reorient their life around the person of Jesus. I also don't think they need a mere set of ethics. They don't need kind, friendly even, but mostly apathetic neighbors. They don't even need merely a new worldview or an outlook on life. And they don't need people who say what they believe because saying what you believe is an opinion. But believing what you say, embodying, being what you say, that is conviction. They need what we need, a strong, consistent, ever-flowing Niagara Falls of the love of God. I think our city is asking a similar question of that Hindu man. Do we have any saints to send them? If we, people who claim ridiculous things, have not been captured, are not enthralled, and are unmoved and unstirred by the love of God, then why do we expect our city to be? The entire scripture is based off the thread of the love of God. It colors every page, is in every book, is found first in God's presence in the ark, then in God's presence in Jesus, then in God's presence through his spirit in the church. There have been movies about it. There are songs for it. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Christian books and studies and classes on the one main thing, the love of God. And I sense this for myself, and I sense this, I think, for all of us who live in the crux of the Bible Belt. The thing that is most difficult for us to believe and most difficult for us to admit we struggle believing is the reality that God is love and that he loves us. At the root of all our unhealth and all of our sin and much of our shame and our insatiable desire for approval and our ability to distract ourselves to death can be found in one thing, a refusal to accept that God's mission is people and his method is love. There are big questions in the world, questions like, how can a good and perfect God allow such injustice and suffering? Valid, right? How can a good and loving God allow cancer and violence and inequity and pornography and miscarriages and unethical, unethical business practices to run rampant in our world? Those are needed questions. But the personal questions in the world are just as relevant, such as, how could a good and perfect God love me? It's the question that we're too afraid to admit, but we're too human to forget. We know about the love of God. We know scripture. We know stories. Some of us even ride on the coattails of other people's experiences of the love of God. Many of us, I would argue most of us in this room, could teach on the love of God. 
We know history, we know facts, we know lingo and vernacular, we know the beginning of the story and the climax of the story and the story. We know so much about it. The question is, do we know it? Let me give you an example. Sarah is the director of a hot air balloon festival. In case you didn't know. Um, it's kind of funny to say that out loud, actually. Uh, it's awesome, but it's kind of funny. Um, she could talk to you about hot air balloons for hours. And she could explain to you about the flame that heats the balloon that sends it up. But she'll be the first to tell you it's just not the same as experiencing the heat. And she could tell you how quiet and still it is when you're a thousand feet in the air with nothing but you and the birds. But that cannot replace the silence that is deafening. And she could show you pictures of the beautiful landscape of the beautiful part of our country that we live in. But it's not the same as experiencing it firsthand. She is fine telling you about hot air balloons, but she is much more emphatic that you actually get in one. It is safe and predictable and fine to watch somebody else do it, but it is altogether something else to experience it yourself. And that is true for so many things, right? It's true for Broadway shows. It's true for once-in-a-lifetime sporting events. It's true for uh, witnessing an heroic act or a feat. It's true for great food and good drink. We know so much about things, but we also know there's a difference between knowing about something and experiencing it. So how much more is it true of God? We can read about his love, we can talk about his love, but what does it mean to receive it? 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe that the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We don't need merely more theological factoids about the love of God. We need face-to-face -face encounters with him. We don't need more theories, we need greater intimacy. John Tyson is a pastor in uh, New York City, and during the very, very first days of the pandemic, when churches were like rolling out live streams and so much resources and all this stuff, and it was flooding your social media feeds, and it was everywhere. And he said this, and I've not forgotten, this was almost two years ago. He said, I'm seeing a lot of content, but I want to know where's the power? I'm seeing a lot of content, but where is the intimacy? And power and intimacy and the experience of God's love, it comes from God, but what does it come through? Well, it comes through things like prayer, spending hidden, quiet time in the silence, and in honesty and conversation, pouring out your heart to God. It comes through scripture, reading, and meditating and understanding that this book is a story of God and his world. It explains the entire issue of our day. And to experience his love is to immerse yourself in the text and find yourself on the story of these pages. It comes through Sabbathing, resting from the rat race of consumerism. We are more than what we do and we are more than what we produce. 
It comes through being embedded in community where we come to terms with the fact that private Christianity is a myth. It is a myth. There is no following Jesus alone, and the projected self that we want to give off fades when we face our own brokenness and embrace our own weakness. And it comes through pursuing the dark corners of our city, where we get exhausted from playing it safe and actually pick a fight with the devil as he wreaks havoc on our neighbors. Here is the thing. When our beliefs are different than our neighbors, but our lives are identical, it is our lives that will speak louder than our beliefs. But when our lives begin to look different and distinct from the city that we inhabit, then a culture gets built. Then people get set free. And God pushes us further up and further in, both into his loving heart and into the hearts of others. The question is, do we know the love of God or do we just know about it? And when we encounter the love of God and we become formed by it, we will become people of that loving God who have something significant to offer to the world. And that love will not create perfection in you, but it will create sincerity in you. And if there is anything that our city is craving, it is not perfection, but sincerity. Such sincere believers attract unbelievers. David Hume was an 18th century British philosopher who rejected historic Christianity outright. But one day, a friend saw him running the streets of London. And he said, where are you going? He said, I am going to hear George Whitfield preach. And he said, surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches. And he said, no, absolutely not. But he does. But he does. There is something alluring and magnetic about people who have been captured in a story that is bigger than themselves and who have nothing to lose because what they have gained that can never be taken, can never be taken from them. It's compelling, but it's not necessarily impressive, right? In fact, it's the fact that we're all weak and unimpressive people is what draws our neighbors in. Christianity involves doing. It involves doing. But it is not chiefly about doing. It is about being. Our city will not be compelled completely by what we do, but by who we are. So, do we have any saints to send them? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we in the world for God, or are we in God for the world? Seems like semantics, but it's not. Are we in the world for God, or are we in God for the world? So, are we rooting ourselves in the world and fighting on God's behalf to try and win over the culture and getting completely burned out when our tactics aren't working and becoming increasingly frustrated by those who disagree with us and we start picking petty fights with the weapons of war like sheer argumentation, cultural debate, battle over the mind, where fear and irritability are our overriding responses? Or... Are we rooting ourselves in God, 
realizing that we are living in God's world, that God is actively working, drawing people to himself, and he is inviting us into the greatest renewal project on earth. And the way he is remaking the world and defeating the enemy is by his sheer irresistible grace. They are different postures. They're different. In 2022, our neighbors do not need more Christians fighting with the tactics of the enemy. They need more people rooted in God, watered by his word, empowered by his spirit, enthralled by his beauty, and emboldened for his name. And that type of person, the one freed by the love of God, will do two things. And these are my two hopes for us in 2022. The first is this. We will become people who normalize risk. We'll normalize risk. One of my greatest fears for this church is that we would become a successful church that would moderately room up. We would meet budget. We would do some interesting things where our neighbor's expectations of God are met and our low satisfaction bar is reached. That is probably my greatest fear because that is predictable. And that does not cost us. Um, it comes in a box, prepackaged, and the scariest thing about it is, in a city like ours, it will sell. It will sell in this city. I don't want that. Our neighbors do not need a predictable God. They need an unhinged, unexplainable, unrealistic, and unbelievably surprising message of divine, cruciform love experienced through your life and mine. Risk is involving yourself in a situation that exposes you. It is involving yourself in a situation that exposes you. And we don't do well with risk. It costs us our reputation, our money, and it creates a feeling of naivety and foolishness. And somewhere along the way, I don't actually know and cannot pinpoint, I thought about this week, I can't pinpoint where in the cultural winds has happened, but somewhere along the way, foolishness in the name of honesty and humility has become the cardinal sin, especially for folks in their early 20s to late 30s. For some reason, the sheer perception that we would be seen as foolish or naive precisely because of our faith has completely paralyzed us. But isn't that Jesus' entire life? It's foolishness. It was foolish for God to embrace children to say that the kingdom is theirs. Children in the ancient Near East were not actually considered human. Did you know that? They were not, they, you know, in our culture, children are the prize of a family. It's, it's innocence and, and glory and a little bit of naivety that's humorous. But in ancient Near East, children didn't register on the cultural radar. And God foolishly says, if you want the kingdom, become like them. It was risky and foolish for God to bring together Matthew and Simon, a conservative, fundamental alt-right-wing conspiracy theorist and an anarchy-filled, progressive, overthrowing liberal and says, both of you, lay it down. Follow me. It was risky and foolish for God to step down to the liberal, literal level of dirt and wash someone's feet in a world where closed-toed shoes do not exist. So you're either walking in sandals or barefoot. And so you're 
feet are considered the dirtiest part of you and the bottom of your feet are considered the grossest part of you. And so to wash someone's feet was an act of utter and ultimate humiliation. And God says, well, first God does it, and then God says, go and do likewise. And it was risky and foolish for God to sit down and dine with sex workers and the morally corrupt. And yet his greatest weapon in disarming the enemy was to eat a meal with people who had no business being invited to the royal dinner party. Then it was risky and foolish for God to open his arms up to the Roman imperial guard and hang on a cross knowing that through public humiliation and state-sponsored execution was the way he was going to redeem the world. And it was risky, and I think probably the most foolish, for God to leave the expansion of his kingdom up to insecure, fragile, weak, incompetent, unimpressive people like us. And here we are, 2,000 years later, across oceans and time and languages, believing that risky, foolish God. Our God models a life of risk, and he gives us his spirit who will never abandon us. And somewhere... We have made it possible in our culture to be saved by Jesus, but not radically transformed by him. So much so that most of our lives may be slightly enhanced, but they'll not be radically rocked and full of risk. And honestly, the wonderful part about this hope of mine in 2022 is that so many of you live this way in 2021. That is why I have hope, because it is anchored in something I have already witnessed. The thing I love most about this church is that it is, it is willing to take some risks. It has some risk in its DNA. So the question for you this year is, what's risky for you in 2022? Daily bread for daily risk. Maybe it's figuring out how to leverage your home more for creative hospitality and genuine friendship across unpredictable lines. Henry Nouwen says, hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. Is your home that? Are we willing to be people who open up our tables and our couches not to change people, but to offer them a space where change is possible? The key to welcoming people into your heart, your home, your relationships is rooted in believing that that's who God is and that's what God does. Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christianity is throwing down the welcome mat even when it costs you, especially when it costs you. Hospitality is one of our greatest weapons against the enemy and it is risky because it reveals vulnerability. But the payoff is relationship, and remember, the mission is people. And what about this community, right? Are we willing to risk stuff within this community? Part of the reason why we just play it safe is because we're not convinced that forgiveness is actually real. Uh, Listen to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He who is alone is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. 
The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. What if we did the unthinkable in 2022 and entrusted relationships, confessed our sin to one another, and then in that sharing of sin, we offer the beautiful, scandalous message of grace, not excuse, grace. It is beauty that will save the world. And there is nothing more beautiful than grace. And just like confessing sin is risky, grace is also risky. But in a world of cancellation and condemnation, there is no more inviting message than grace. And I say normalize risk. I use the word normalize risk because there are plenty of people who follow Jesus who risk something. And the rest of us are in shock because we deem something that they did extraordinary and superhero-like. And I can prove that you believe that because here's why. You know you have seen someone do something or live a certain way or act a certain way or do something sacrificial and you have said, I could never do that. I could never do that. I, I couldn't do it. What, what sacrifice, what testimony, I couldn't do it. Why do you have that response? Why do I have that response? It's because risk is not normal. It is an anomaly in the Christian life. Playing it safe is the norm. Risk is something the great ones do, and the rest of us lie to ourselves and think we would much rather be comfortable, even though we know that risk is where belief meets reality. In Matthew 19, Jesus tells a famous story of a rich young ruler where the ruler comes up to ask Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus tells him, shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. You should honor your parents and love your neighbor. And the man says, great, I've done all of that. What am I missing? And he says, go, sell all you possess to the poor and come follow me. And the next verse is one of the most striking verses to the modern senses where he says, and he walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Cost, cost. Following Jesus costs something. It has to cost something. Love risks something because it actually means something. And if something is worth, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton says, it is worth doing poorly. So to follow Jesus and not take risk in life is quite frankly to live a terribly boring life. And it just means that we're agreeing with his lifestyle in our heads, but we don't believe it enough to emulate it. So we're just saying Jesus has some pretty good ideas. It is similar to the man who watched from the side of the building as the great tightrope artist took a wheelbarrow and put another man in it and walked 50 yards across 2,000 feet high buildings. And the man on the side is utterly impressed. He's blown away. He thinks this is the greatest thing ever. So when the, art ro- the uh, tightrope artist gets to the the man says, uh, or the artist says to the man, do you believe I could do that again? And the man says, absolutely. 
And he says, great, get in. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't believe it that much. The invitation is just to keep saying yes to Jesus. It is difficult, it is hard, it is not easy, but it is actually where life is found. Second thing quickly is we will become people who will plant roots. So first we'll normalize risk, second we'll plant roots. The great wonder of this church is that it's full of young people. Uh, in the history of the world, you can trace it back. Every resurgence, revival, sense of God's presence and desire for justice has always started with young people. Um, it is very evidently documented and recorded. Because with youth comes zeal, passion, energy, a burning and desire to do something great and grand for God. It is life-giving. I love that. But zeal without roots is like a swimmer in the middle of the Atlantic. You will die. You will die. Author and educator Parker Palmer says, burnout merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. It's not enough to have zeal, especially when it comes to following Jesus. You need zeal, but that must come from a rooted, hidden life in God. We are not looking for lightning strike Christianity. We want the life of a tree. Deep roots that are hidden that take years that have fruit to bear for decades to come because the roots are deep in the ground. Life is too difficult and challenging and full of sorrow and setback to make it off of zeal. We must plant roots. We must root ourselves in God and we must root ourselves in a place. To be passionate without being planted is to be about causes, not about people. To be passionate without being planted is to be about causes, not about people. God's mission is people. God's mission has always been people. He is the pursuer of people. And if you want to accept the invitation into God's mission, you must be intertwined into the life of people. And you can only be intertwined when you know them and when they know you and when you share meals and conversations and stories over years and years of meaningful time with them. And when you do that, you become planted. God is painting the most miraculous of pictures, but he is taking his time. So plant yourself here. Be rooted here in this community, for this community, for your neighbors, for years and years to come. It is good to have seal, but let's plant some roots. I'm going to close with this. As people enamored with the love of God that live risky and planted lives, really unexplainable lives, we will be taken captive by beauty. I said this during our Advent series, but we've got to be people who hold the brokenness of the world in one hand and the beauty of the world in another. Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of God. It's full of it. During the years of 1992 to 1996, there was something known as the Bosnian War, which was a violent war with over 100,000 Bosnians who died. It's a modern-day genocide of epic proportions. And in the midst of this war between Bosnia and certain political factions of Serbia, I think in Yugoslavia, there is now an infamous attack called the Siege of Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia and Her Herzegovina. And the siege lasted four years, the longest siege of a capital city in modern warfare. So this is a really, really big deal that quite frankly a lot of history doesn't talk about. 
Um, but during the early days of this attack on the city, a mortar struck the downtown square and killed 22 people in the National Library. And there was a man named Vidron Smelovic, a cellist, who put himself in the scope of a sniper's range with his cello and played for 22 days straight amidst the ruin and rubble of war and violence in the National Library. And during the 22 days, he played Albanoni's Adagio in G minor. This is a picture of him right here. Uh, a risky, moving gesture that honored the victims and made a very strong and symbolic statement. Beauty wins the day. John McCutcheon is a singer-songwriter now, and in one of the songs, he sings about the man in Sarajevo, and he says this, I'm just gonna, I didn't print off the whole song, though I thought about it, um, but here are some of the lyrics to this. So I come here in defiance, and to add a bit of grace, try to ease the awful hatred and the horror of this place, to remember there is beauty no matter what they say in the streets of Sarajevo every day. And every day I see them, those who will not stand aside, who refuse to be defeated, and who rage against the, against the tide. They are a glimmer in the darkness, the rolling of the stone, a message in a bottle from the distant shores of home. And every day he made me wonder where did he ever find the music midst the madness, the courage to be kind. The long-forgotten beauty we thought was blown away in the streets of Sarajevo and Belfast and Riyadh, in the streets of New York City, Bali and Baghdad, and in the streets of every city, every day. There is great brokenness both in us and around us. And the most beautiful being in the universe has come <laughs> to play the cello in the midst of our lives, and in the midst of our world. God has come into our broken world, and he has redeemed us, and he pushed up his own casket. And because of that, just like light did not stream into the tomb, but it actually streamed out of the tomb, now there are beams and beams and beams of light streaming into the world every day. We just have to look up. You have probably heard it said as Christians, we need to be about what is good, true, and beautiful in the world. And I love that statement. I love that statement, except that most of the time, there is a lot of cultural battles, even in the midst of Christianity, over what is good and over what is true. And we never get to what is beautiful. But there is something subversive that cuts underneath all of that when it comes to beauty. And there seems to be a commonality around it, so much so that when we experience beauty, arguing stops and awe starts. We don't typically fight over things that are beautiful. We just marvel at them. So I propose in 2022 that in the midst of living risky and planted lives captivated by the God of love, maybe we reverse that order and cultivate what is beautiful, true and good in the world. Do we have any saints to send them? Do we have any saints to send them? Let's pray. Jesus, we humbly come to you and we need your grace and we receive your grace. We are broken people.
freely offering to the world what you have given us, your son. And so I pray for us that we would say yes to receiving your grace and yes to pursuing our neighbors and of our life, resting in the promises and purposes of God and pursuing the dark corners of our city, being comforted and challenged in community and then being expelled out into the world for your sovereign purposes and name. This vision is worth giving our lives to. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand as we close in worship? Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.